The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome to the Arise to Success show. As this, as, as this is our first show, I would like to give some background about the show and what it aims to address. So firstly, just to introduce myself, my name is Jihad, a counsellor, coach and educational practitioner in personality traits. I've taken part in previous shows. Um, so if you have tuned in, you might have a bit of background about what I do, but just um, to let you know a little bit more about the, um, the personality work that I do is that it is similar to the concept of 16 personalities or the Myers-Briggs, but more from the Islamic perspective. Um, based on the Prophet Muhammad's model. So an example is when the Prophet, when the, um, the Sahabi, the companion Abu Dhar when he asked the Prophet Muhammad to have a role in the public office or in the government, the Prophet Muhammad actually denied it and he asked him to go into Dawah and said, and this Sahabi is very well known for his high piety. Yet another Sahabi, Osama bin Zaid he was appointed to be the leader of an army from the age of 18 when there were so many other Sahabas much older than him and the Prophet did not appoint them such a position. So the reasons behind this is that it's all based on their personality. So the Prophet Muhammad chose the right person to be put in the right role. So within the work that I do in, in relation to the personalities, I do give examples of the Sahabas, the companions, to tell the individuals which of the companions, males or females, depending on the gender of my client, have the personality of the individual so that they learn more about them, about such companions, and how we can be like them in order for them to serve as our role models. So, and there will also be podcasts coming out uh, to go more in depth about their personalities. So stay tuned to that. Now, in terms of the Arise to Success show that we are starting today, I try to bring guests to share their experiences and the stories of their successes that and what they did and, and how it got how they got so far. As I use examples of the companions in my work to save to serve as our role models, I want to also bring role models of today that have achieved things in their lives and the stories behind their successes. So I want this to be an inspiration to all of us. And success has a lot behind it. And it's not always just, you know, um, positive things that have led to success. A lot of times it's a lot of struggles that have led to our successes. So those guests will show their experiences and their stories, and they will tell us about those stories that, that led to where, to where they are today. Now, the idea behind the name of the show, it came from the verse that was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad when he was informed of his prophethood. And the verse is arise and warn. Now, one of the interpretations of warn here is to inform the people of, of the Prophet's prophethood and the religion of Islam. Now, one of the things that the Prophet Muhammad did to the companions is that he informed them of their personalities and how they can utilize their personalities in the best ways to lead to, the, to, lead to their successes, as well as the success of the whole ummah. Hence, I came up with the name Arise to Success. And inshallah, we all arise to success and help our ummah to arise to success too, just as the companions did. So that brings me to introduce my amazing guest with us today to share what she does and the story that led to her successes. But just before I introduce her, just to let you know, listeners, you are welcome to send us your questions or comments throughout the show at 0779481822. And today I'm going to introduce our guest who is somebody that I'm so honored to have in my show and more specifically in my first show. Saj Zafar is a leadership trainer, motivational speaker, author, and an accredited personal and professional development coach. She's also the founder of Institute for Change, which is a specialist training and coaching consultancy, which primarily focuses on helping organizations create inclusive cultures. Saj, welcome to the Arise to Success show. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. And can I just add the privilege and honor is mine to be your first guest on the show. So thank you. Thank you so much, Saj. So, Saj, when I when I read about your bio and the background and, and the different things that you got involved in, I was so fascinated and I couldn't help but to, let, to tell everybody that I know about you being on my show today so that they can um, they can tune in. Um, I don't want to be the one giving all the information about you and about what you did. I would like you to introduce yourself and tell us more about what you do and what you did in the past as well. 
Okay, so um, whenever I am asked to, to share my story, I always say that um, my story is every woman's story. I don't think it's unique. I think um, it just happens that I am a daughter of the first migrants that arrived in the 1970s. And I know that a lot of your listeners, women in particular, um, what I'm about to share will resonate with them on many levels. So I had the typical upbringing of a young Asian Pakistani female being raised to, to the first migrants that arrived here. And typically, I describe my childhood as being very schizophrenic, and I, and I don't mean that in the mental health uh, way. What I mean, it was there was a conflict. There was a conflict because I was born to illiterate uh, parents, uneducated parents, uh, and the typical backdrop to my story is my father came here uh, as a uh, and began work as a labourer. My mum was a housewife. Of course, after we arrived, there were three more siblings added to to, to the brood, and. I think life was pretty uneventful um, before I actually uh, went into school. And the reason for that was we were very protected. So anything outside of the door stayed outside of the door. And I think mom and parents understandably were very precious about who they were and the culture and the religion. And they were mindful that they were raising children in this country. And, and I think in their own way, they just wanted to make sure that they didn't lose out on their culture and their beliefs and their values. Um, so um, pretty uneventful until I went to school. And that's when my horror nightmare started. And I think it started with the fact that we were one of the earliest Asian families in a small mining town and um, so when I turned up at school at the age of five my mom typically uh, dressed me up for the occasion so I had coal in my eyes I had thick hair so she braided that with lots and lots of oils and I can see most of you uh, of your viewers will be cringing, cringing at this but and then she sent me off into school and hence you know it was an all-white school uh, and as we know children try are very curious and they wanted to find out who I was you know who had this alien suddenly appeared and, and that's unfortunately that's where it kind of spiraled and I became at the brunt of bullying because I couldn't speak English so I wasn't really prepared for school uh, and to, to the teacher's frustration uh, then it soon became apparent that I was going to end up with problems and those problems became my routine suddenly became like parents being called into into um into the school because I reverted, um, I resorted to, to fist fighting, uh, pulling hair, uh, just through fr a sheer frustration and anger that I wasn't being accepted. I didn't have many friends. Uh, and before I knew it, uh, I, I'd, uh, you know, clocked up a whole report for the next five years, which kind of looked at parents being called in. Uh, she's, you know, she's not focused. She's very disruptive poor attention span, uh, followed by detention. And by the time I was 11, sadly, I, um, uh, uh, you know, I was stabbed uh, uh, after one night after school detention by bullies. Uh, and again, you know, this became like a feature. And, and, and as my parents, as, as the eldest being raised here and as a female child, um, I just became a nightmare for them. So, um, and things sadly got worse before they got any better. So the next few years, in my mind, I've got a very clear set idea about what I wanted to do. And sadly, it was to escape the life that I was born into, because mm -hmm. what I witnessed was when you looked at the Western world, when you watched the TV, everybody seemed to be happy and everybody had freedom and space to grow and evolve and become. And here I was being suffocated and, um, you know, particularly with my parents, who they particularly were at that around that time. Uh, and I'm sort of the, the first child, so they're really experimenting. And so they, they, they kind of oppressed me more. And, and I remember, you know, the best expectation they had of me was to grow up and um, be prepared for an arranged marriage. I had other plans. You know, for me, in my head, even very early on in my school years, I was thinking, no, you know, I want an education, uh, education. I want to have the freedom. I want to have a career. I wanted to do everything that you and I take for granted today. So it wasn't anything unique or different. But I think back then, culturally, 
um, you know, the expectations were very really different. And, and by the time I was 15, I was so determined. Uh, and I think my parents had a handful. The school were very much, it was very disjointed, um, you know, in the sense that uh, I, I remember my careers teacher sort of saying to me, Sad, you know, because I went to him and I said, listen, I need to have a placement. I want to do my GCSEs. And he kind of shook his head and he said, no, um, the best that you can expect is an arranged marriage and a brood of children. And he pushed me away. Mm. Um, so, so that is the kind of attitudes and the culture that I, I was mixed up in. So when I was so schizophrenic you had the whole situation where I wasn't very happy and they had their own expectations and then married that up with the schooling uh, and typically that was also a space that I wasn't very happy about and so um you know and then things happened and sadly by the time I was 15 I thought enough is enough and I decided that the only way out and I'd soon come to learn there were only two ways out of the culture that I was born into and that was marriage or death and sadly I decided to go for the latter so I took a, a very heavy overdose ended up in hospital and having my stomach pumped out and uh, feeling more crappy than I did before I went in knowing that I'd failed miserably at even trying to overdose and, and I remember um, being taken to see the, the psychiatrist uh, a beautiful blonde woman who kind of peered over her glasses and made her assessment of me which was really to say to my father she's having an identity crisis and I think my father's interpretation to that sadly was a one-way ticket back to Kashmir so if you imagine one minute I'm laid up in bed drooling over George Michael you know sort of you know listening to his music and then the next I'm traveling all the way back to my birthplace which I hadn't been to since since I was a baby and so all the trauma and the experiences I'd had of trying to fit in here in the UK that got reignited when I went back to Kashmir because now I didn't fit into their culture I didn't speak mm. the language in their clothes I couldn't cook or clean um, and hence you know the next two years four months and 15 days were uh, as I call it were you know very very traumatic I managed to negotiate um, a return back to to the UK and um, managed to go to university and it's there I studied forensic psychology and I'd always been interested in uh, in, in psychology but uh, in, in, the, in, in the criminal mind. And um, mm. so I graduated in forensic psychology, uh, which really brings me to, to, to London. And uh, my first ever role was as a therapeutic manager for young sex offenders in a prison. So, um, uh, which was really interesting. And I think when you're 20 something and you've come out of uni, I didn't really have many, you know, ambitions or career plans. And, and for me, I was just lucky that I landed in this big job. And so I, I, I you know, I showed a lot of commitment. Uh, and for five years, I, you know, uh, you know, managed to achieve all my key performance targets, which then brought me to the attention of the senior leaders. And I think they were quite um, amused and, uh, and they, found, uh, they found it uh, quite interesting that this young Asian Pakistani girl mm -hmm. in the middle of this prison, which is all white males staff-wise, mm -hmm. and then you've got the prisoners and she seems to thrive and strive in this environment. And I remember the senior governor approaching me and um, you know, uh, having a conversation around my future plans, which, to, you know, I didn't have any future plans. I was just lucky that I was in a job. And he said to me, um, I think I would like to nominate you for the leadership program. And six months later, um, I became the first Asian Muslim woman to become a prison governor. So uh, what that involved was uh, obviously, you know, graduating the program and then uh, being appointed to my first prison, which was HMP Wormwood Scrub. And if you've done your research, you'll know it's one of the most notorious and one of the worst prisons that you can be appointed to. Mm -hmm. So that's where I end up, ended up. And fast forward, uh, alhamdulillah, I had a, an amazing career. Um, you know, and, you know, people sort of say to me, how is it that you found yourself in prisons and sort of using that environment to strive and thrive? And I said, I don't know what it was, but I was very comfortable. I enjoyed it. And once in an interview, I was asked, what were your challenges? And I said, young, Asian, Muslim, female. So those were my mm -hmm. challenges. But I overcame them, you know, so, uh, and alhamdulillah, that kind of took me 
Um, and then, I, of course, I fell in love, got married to my soulmate, my partner, had two beautiful sons. And then I came to realize that the work-life balance wasn't going to be there. So you couldn't necessarily uh, have children and manage a prison uh, as a full-time thing. So then I moved into central government. Um, and again, you know, really thrived there until five years ago when I decided to take leave and follow what I call my life purpose and calling that to coach women. Wow! Wow! <laughs> I, I, don't, I think when you asked me for an introduction, I, I was trying to get all of that in um, yeah. to give a bit of context as to how I ended up here. That that is amazing, and you know when when you're talking, Subhanallah! I was listening. I was like, I have a lot of questions. I don't know which one to start okay, with. <laughs> you go for it. You ask away. It's your <laughs> show. So, like I said, no, no, don't hold back on the questions. Just ask away. No, just mainly, you know, being so amazed that because I know what you've done in your life, but I don't know the story behind it. So that's the first time I hear about it as well. And just listening to yourself, because I work with young people and like I can resonate, I can see where, you know, a lot of young people end up where you ended as well at that time. Uh, and that's a question I'll come to at the end in terms of what, what would you say to yourself, you know, as a child? But I, I will end with that or I'll ask that a bit later. But just for the meantime, I'm just wondering here, being, you know, gone through that childhood that you've gone through and then coming and having that, as you said, it was my luck that you've had that, that, that job. I'm just wondering how it felt for you to have that job and also how did you work so hard and, and you know, you, you've done so well in such an environment considering that, just a few years before that, you were, you know, ending your life. What, what was it like? Um, I do believe that God prepares you. Yeah. I, I believe that he prepares you for certain things. And um, as we know, your destiny, your fate is dictated before mm. long before you're born. So for me, um, the background that I come from and all the struggles I think they led me to the to the life that I lead today. Mm -hmm. And being uh, the first youngest Asian female, when I look back in my history, I'm not surprised because um, from a very young age, I knew I was different. I knew that nobody was going to be able to box me in. Nobody was going to put any uh, parameters, be it cultural or religious or whatever it was. And I was, and I was, you know, I always saw myself as a bit of a, a free spirit, uh, ultimately a fighter. And, and I think, you know, when you learn from a very, very young age that it is about uh, survival, uh, imagine, you know, today, when, you know, I've raised two beautiful boys and, you know, friendships, relationships, um, a, a learning environment, all of those things are really conducive to well-being. And, and I didn't have any of that. So I feel like in the absence of a childhood, always, you know, being at the brunt of uh, bullying, cruelty from other children, using my fists, you know, um, just trying to cope and, and then ha not having the support from my family. And looking back, I, I think that wasn't the fact that um, they weren't able. I don't, I think it was just a lack of understanding. Mm. And, and so just finding myself in this place of not belonging. So, mm. so hence, there was always this thing about wanting to do something and you know uh, you know uh, I obviously you know for, for some of the stuff that I've gone through I've gone through therapy and uh, I loved one of my therapists when she said she was trying to connect the dots and she says isn't it ironic that you know, you spent most of your life trying to escape the life you had. And then the most comfortable position you end up is inside a prison. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, you know, um, we can talk about that. That'll be a whole episode about, about the connections. But I did. And I think I'll tell you what, what it was. Uh, and I've often thought about this. I ended up in an environment where most people don't wish to be there. That's the mm -hmm. first thing that Let's keep it real. It doesn't matter if you're guilty or not, but nobody wants to be inside a prison. The second thing is most of the people that um, are there as a result of crime, but it's mm -hmm. the underlying stuff. It's the underlying stuff. It's the dysfunctional background, family, exclusion from schools. We know that most of our young people, young men, are dyslexic. Uh, you know, that social sort of background that they come from. All of those kind of problems manifest and lead them to where they don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a criminal. Yeah. So for me, I think 
I was comfortable in that environment because these this was part of a society that nobody wanted to associate with. This was part of a society that nobody really wants to share the air with. Mm-hmm. And, and I know how that feels. Mm-hmm. I actually know how that feels. So for all the right or wrong reasons, you know, I just felt that there, there was that understanding. And, 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 you know, when I came into prisons, you know, um, it was unusual for women to work in prisons, especially in male prisons. And, but I think soon after I came, there was a recognition that I brought a different perspective. So rather than escalating situations, I was always defusing situations. Rather than, you know, um, reacting, I was responding. And I think that female touch uh, uh, brought, you know, something much more different. And I, I think, you know, by the time I'd left, there was a, a huge number of increase uh, of more women in, in prisons because I think prison service woke up to the fact that mm-hmm. actually you yeah. could have, you know, women working in metal environments. Yeah. So so uh, I think one thing I do have in abundance from, from you know, if you ever get the time to read my, my life book is mm-hmm. um, resilience. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that you have to learn to do is to dig deep. When things are not going right, how do you come through? How do you get to the other side? Uh, and so one thing I do, I think, have in abundance is, is resilience. And that's put me in good stead for all the stuff that's happened in my life. Yeah, wow. And that's something you had as a child as well. All of the bullying that you've experienced and everything yeah. that you've gone through, you still wanted to do more. But every time you try to do it, you get rejected and you get pushed away. And when it starts to look better, it starts to get worse again. And where you had to yeah. move home and then having to come back again and so on. Now, with the um, being becoming the prison governor, um, being the first female, Asian, you know, Muslim female, mashallah, how did it feel for you to be in such an environment when you've gone through so much in your life? You kind of, a little bit before that, you lost a bit of hope. And did it bring hope back to you? I don't think it was about hope. I, I think mm-hmm. it was um, it was tough. It mm-hmm. was very tough. And I had to edit myself. Mm-hmm. And I must share with you that the when I uh, was a forensic psychologist and I went to work inside the prison and um, I, was, I was summoned to the governor's office, so, um, and I went along there and he looked at me. So imagine you're 23 years old, fresh from uni, really yeah. don't have much clue, right? Just super excited that you've got this job inside a prison. And I must admit, I didn't even process that. I was just relieved that I'd got this job and it was something that resonated with me. It's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And he looked me up and down and, you know, he reminded me that I was a female he reminded me that I was very young. And he also reminded me that he had over a thousand young boys that were very similar age to me. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you know, just be mindful that they will not see you as a therapist or a forensic psychologist. They will see you as a female first. Mm-hmm. You have to take responsibility for that, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time he'd finished, uh, I was just a, a, a wreck, you know. Mm. I ended up going into the ladies and really having a good cry because I thought, oh, my God, what was he saying? You know, mm. is my safety uh, going to be an issue? You know, what, what does it mean that they will, you know, see me as a female first? And, you know, so that day I went home that evening and I decided to edit myself. And I think what, I'm, what I want to share with you, so um, I decided that I wasn't going to wear heels. I was going to wear flat shoes. Mm-hmm. I decided I was going to wear trousers suits. So I actually had tailor-made trousers suits, very mm-hmm. similar to what men were wearing, in, you know, at that level. I had rolled up jumpers, so there was no sign of cleavage or flesh or anything. I took my makeup off. Uh, I had my hair sort of, you know, scraped back, wore my, took my lenses out, put my glasses on. Because what I didn't want to do was to draw any unnecessary attention. Mm. But luckily for me, I was, you know, I was so capable and very passionate about what I wanted to do. So therefore that always came through. But um, it wasn't easy. And then when I went into prisons as a prison governor, 
um, the highlight. Uh, it was one of those moments where you pinch yourself. So I didn't know that when when you go into the prison because of the, the 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 seniority and the status that a prison governor has. So um, I wasn't accustomed to that when I walked into the room, staff would stand out of courtesy mm-hmm. and they would address me as mom. Uh, and that, you know, again, when you're 20 something and you've been catapulted from being an ordinary team manager, you know, sort of work managing your workload with a small team of people, and then you catapult into the senior position and out of all the places in the world, a prison, you know, and then you've been addressed as mom, you, you just think, you know, is this really happening to me? But it did. And, and you know, um, the the running pattern or theme of my life is I tend to leap without thinking mm. and then bear the consequences once I've jumped. And Alhamdulillah, God has been very kind that sometimes I've jumped and mm. I've cracked and burned, but I've always come back, always came back. Or there have been occasions when I have left. And, and it's, you know, like, like I said, you know, went from a team manager to a prison government and it's paid off, you know? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and I love what you said. You've always come back, mashallah. And it's been like, it's always been like this since childhood. We've got a few seconds left. So listeners, we'll go for a short break. Please stay tuned and we'll be back in a few minutes. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome back to the Arise to Success show. We have Saj Zafar with us tonight on the show, who's a leadership trainer, motivational speaker, author, and an accredited personal and professional development coach. She's also the founder of Institute of Institute for Change, a specialist training and coaching consultancy, which primarily focuses on helping organizations create inclusive cultures. If you have any questions or comments, please do feel free to send them on the number 0779-481822. So, Sash, before the break, we discussed quite a lot about your life and your childhood and, you know, the early um, jobs that you've had and being the first Asian Muslim female working in the prison. Now... Mashallah, we've also touched upon, you know, all the challenges that you've gone through and how, you know, where, where it led to where you are now. Uh, we also talked about um, how, you know, just before the break, how you felt like you needed to change your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, just from a comment that um, that somebody has mentioned to you that you are a female. And that kind of makes me think about the kind of things that we say we need to be careful sometimes of what we say because it can have a huge impact on somebody, positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with that comment, you decided to change your identity and you said you always come back. So, and that's something, as I mentioned before the break as well, that, you know, mashallah, with, with your life story, it was always like back and forth, back and forth. But mashallah, you always um, end up being, you know, in, in, a, in a great decision, mashallah. From there onwards, um, Saj, what happened? Where did you take your life from there, you know, changing your identity? Perhaps you could walk us through what happened after that. Um, just to clarify, I didn't change my identity. I knew who I was. I think um, uh, despite uh, all the challenges, I was very firm on who I was as a Muslim Mm-hmm. young woman i knew what my values were they they were instilled um uh, and although there were times when i think you know especially when you hit your teenage years you want to explore you want to find out who you are you know clearly like any other teenager i had my own issues and i wanted to understand who i was mm-hmm. um not to say that i made a good job of it but um I think what, what saddens me, one of the things like when I look back is that um, I was just always in a state of confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, confusion for myself trying to fit in. That was really important because there is an innate desire as a human being that we want to fit in. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. And unfortunately, I didn't experience any of that, uh, especially, you know, where we were. Uh, 
Uh, also, I think um, the lack of understanding, and that was through a lack of education and not knowing. So obviously, there was a conflict between who I was and, and who my parents were, and them desperately trying to hang on to, um, you know, the, the culture and a way of being that they'd left mm -hmm. back in Pakistan, Kashmir. So, you know, they, they were trying to do their best. And, and so I was very firm on who I was. What I'm talking about is what many women will do in the workplace, and that is what we call self-editing. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we're very mindful that as women, um, even in 2023, um, you know, it's not unusual that we find ourselves, especially the more senior you become uh, in the hierarchy, it's not very unusual to find yourself as the only woman in that space, mm -hmm. and more importantly, as the only woman of colour or, or an Asian woman. And, and you're surrounded by men. And too often, the language, the culture is very, very male orientated. Mm. And I think for me, in order for me to cope, and, and I would never, ever impose this on anybody, I wouldn't want uh, anybody to take this literally, but for me to cope, I had to edit myself. I had to be less feminine. Mm. I had, I, I felt like because I was young, and like I said, the challenges I had, I was young, aging, female, and Muslim on top of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So so people weren't accustomed to having somebody of my, uh, you know, being to be in those spaces. So mm -hmm. for me, I wanted to blend in. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be taken seriously. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to, you know, all the things that, you know, most men get and expect when they're mm -hmm. in the workplace. And, and so I soon learned that the less female I was, the better it was, it would serve me much better. And I'll give you a clue. So when my colleagues, you know, and, and these are the staff that I manage, when they would make a racist joke or they'd make a sexist joke, they'd look up and for a split second, they'd notice that I was in the room, but then they would shrug their shoulders and say, oh, it's okay, it's sad. She's oh. one of us. Right. And and sometimes you come back and you challenge. And, and I think for those of us, you know, that have gone through life, I think one of the lessons I've always learned is choose your battles. You can't consistently always challenge. So sometimes you laugh along and, and, and you know, sometimes you cringe and sometimes you get upset. But you have to decide on the actual moment or day or time of how you're feeling and what you, you know, what what you want to do and how do you want to re react or respond to any of that. So so I just wanted to make sure that, you know, um, uh, people understood when I said uh, what I was talking about when self-editing. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I said, uh, I had a, a wonderful career and, you know, and working at the, at the level that I was. Um, and then to 2019, um, a, a nosebleed happened and, mm -hmm. Next thing I know, I'm being blue lighted into hospital. Next thing I know, I'm having a CT scan. And next thing I know, I'm having an end of life conversation oh, with a neurosurgeon. And the conversation is such that uh, they detect that, you know, there is a, a, a tumor on my brain. All the alhamdulillah, it was benign. And I had to undergo treatment for about 12 months. But the interesting thing was um, that in this 12 months, I reevaluated my life. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize that I had been driven by circumstances. I had been driven by bad choices. I had consistently gone navigating through my life, trying to fit in, blend in, be accepted, be liked, be respected. And somehow, you know, I managed to survive all of that. You mm. know, I managed to survive that and tell a story. So when this um, health scare happened or near death experience happened, uh, I thought, no, God can't be unkind. He didn't bring me through all that turmoil, all of that uh, trauma to get me to this stage and suddenly say, I'm going to pull the plug on you. So, um, and I think when you're reevaluating, you naturally go back to uh, that point and you start to question, who am I and why am I here?
Yeah. And it was these two questions that bothered me amidst all my medication. And mm. I was on that hard stuff, by the way. So I was always morphed mm. out. And, and I realized that actually I couldn't undo any of the things that had happened to me. Mm. I couldn't go back in time and change any of that. However, what I could do, and, and, and this is what really I think I hung on to for dear life, and this was my epiphany moment. I think I decided there and then that either I could continue to play the victim of injustice mm. or I could turn things around and be that one person for anybody that was going through something similar that I had gone through. Wow, love it. And that is my pivotal moment. And that's when I decided, I thought, Do you know what? I can't undo any of this, but going forward, I'm going to make sure that if there is a young person or, or a young woman or a woman of any, and if she's going through any hardship or, um, you know, life, life comes and it tests us, or, you know, all the time, I'm going to be that woman in her corner. Because when I revisited my history, my life story, I noted that if anybody, including the teachers, the counsellors, the psychiatrists, there were lots of people that came into my life. And at any given moment, if somebody had stopped and taken the time, I do believe that my life would have been different. Mm -hmm. But nobody paid attention. You know, they added to the problems. You know, like a psychiatrist saying to my father, she's having an identity crisis. His interpretation is, let's take her back to Pakistan and mold her into the Pakistani girl that she should be. So, mm. so I decided, and that's when, after a year long uh, of illness, I did something incredibly brave. And, and I'd like to think that I've done a lot of courageous things. But mm. I went back into the workplace after 12 months walked in with my lanyard, my laptop, my mobile phone, and said that I wasn't coming back. Mm. With no thought to what I was going to do. And mm. I remember coming back on the Tuesday, you know, and and I had suddenly had this, this heart-pumping moment, and I thought, oh, my God, I've just resigned. And mm. what am I going to do? And we're, you know, typically a two-income family. I've got two children, two cars in the drive. I've got a hefty mortgage. And I'm thinking, why did I do this? Mm. But you know what? For a split second, I got nervous. But then something inside of me thought, no, I'm going to make this work. And 24 hours later, I am driving to the bank to see if I can get a loan to help me to bridge the gap between me leaving work and starting my business as a coach. And you're not going to believe this. In an empty car park, I crashed the car. Okay. Mm. So immediately you think, God's looking down. Clearly this is the wrong decision. Now I've crashed the car. Okay. Mm. I come home really upset. I'm thinking, my gosh, you know, have I done the right thing? Mm. And then that evening, my husband comes back from work. And he looks worse than I do. And I'm th I'm nervous because I'm now having to tell him that I've crashed the car. Mm. You know, I've already resigned from the job. And he looks at me and he says, I've got some bad news. And I said, what, that, what is that? And he said, I've been made redundant. Oh, wow. So I've resigned. I've crashed the car. And he's been made redundant. A couple of days later, we get a notice through to say that the crack in the walls of our home is caused by subsidence and because we are in a uh, in a particular area the insurance doesn't cover the damage so if you can imagine my whole life just fell on its head so I'm thinking I've resigned he's been made redundant I've crashed the car and now the house is falling down right and I think it's that moment and, and I really hang on to that moment when you, you there is nowhere for you to go, mm. right? And the easiest thing would have been to literally go and look for another job or mm. go back to work and say, I think I made a, a, a bit of a mistake. Mm. But for me, always take the hard way, always take the mm. difficult route. And I thought, no, I've made a decision. I'm going to make this work. 
And that's when I decided, no, I'm going to start a coaching business. I'm going to help women in the workplace that are really struggling to get their promotion. And I'm going to help them into leadership. I pitched my first program after eight weeks of creating a program. And I was so blessed that the the head of HR, she took me on board. She heard my my pitch. I think more importantly, I think she heard my passion and and so determination that I was going to make this work. Uh, And I piloted the first program. And I just want to share, I took 17 women on this leadership program out of which 10 women applied and secured their next promotion. So that caused, you know, everybody to get super excited. And today I've created a leadership academy. And Mm. what, you know, the idea came that there is a need for coaching. do want coaching but sadly because of the mindset and the way that we programmed and everything that we you know are uh, as such we we struggle to invest in ourselves so hence i wanted to bring a platform which was easy accessible and more importantly affordable so mm-hmm. so launched the leadership academy which is an online private members community where women can come connect have coaching, access to resources, uh, and really start to do what I did in the last so many years of connecting with who I am and what I stand for, what is my life purpose, and living a life that is totally aligned to my values. Wow, Saj, subhanAllah, you know, (laughs) listening to your story firstly as a child and all the challenges that you've gone through and then everything else. And then also the moment that you've decided to leave work and then everything just started to get complicated, as you've mentioned. And in my mind, what I was thinking when you were saying that, the easiest option is to go back and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I need this job, right? But you decided not to do that and you decided to... you know what? I had that. Um, uh, you know, 22 years of service, you know, they were not going to allow me to, to, to go so easily. And I have to confess, my, my, my you know, direct line manager, bless him, uh, you know, he said, look, Saj, I think you might have PTSD. He said, go home, you know, think about it, take six months gardening leave, do what you have to do, but then come back. Mm-hmm. And they accept my resignation. So for six months, according to, to them, I was on gardening leave. But in my mind, the minute I gave everything up, I walked out of there, I knew I was never going back. Wow. And how long ago was that? That was 2019. So four and a half years, alhamdulillah, uh, I can sit here. And, and I do giggle. I do giggle mm-hmm. because I never claimed to be a businesswoman. Mm. And, uh, and you know, I coach women and some women also say, oh, my God, I've got an idea side, but I don't know how to translate it and I don't want to leave my job, etc. And I always sort of say, if you know what it is you want to do and you understand your why, it always comes to, you know, the reason behind that then it doesn't matter what life will throw at you. You will always persevere and you will always muddle through. And, you know, um, I I had a business coach. I had a business coach not so long ago. And he he said to me, oh, Sash, do you have a marketing strategy? And I kind of looked at him. And then he said, do you have a business plan? And I kind of looked at him. And, you know, and he said, how do you get work? And I said, through word of mouth, you know, I I get referrals, I don't do marketing, I don't do social media, I don't do any of those things. But um, Alhamdulillah, God's been very kind, because with every prayer, I say to him, just bring me the woman that you feel I can connect with, and I can do good to, and I can give value and impact to. Mm -hmm. Um, He does, Mm -hmm. you know, he takes care of all of that. Because I'm here and and I'm mindful that, yes, I'm a business and I'm a very successful business, but ultimately what I'm doing is giving. Mm -hmm. I'm giving and providing the service. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't see it as a job. I see it as service. You know, I am serving others. And unashamedly, unapologetically, it's women. And and somebody asked me, you know, a couple of weeks ago in an interview, they said, oh, why women? And I said, because I am a woman. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't have to explain my DNA or the way my 
brain is working or wired or the stuff that we go through as women. So for me, I'm going to lean into that, you know, whereas I might not be able to understand or give the same explanation or understanding to, to a male. But that's not to say that I don't work with men. Um, yeah. It's just that, you know, my preference or way mm. of working or the client group that I work with is, you know, I have young girls at 16 who will listen to my talks and say, oh, my God, Saj, you know, I need you. And, and you know, to a 55-year-old woman that's coming to, to the end of her career and saying, oh, my God, where have you been all my life? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, um, and that's when, you know, I was mindful that when I was creating the Leadership Academy, that I wanted to open doors for all walks of life. You know, mm-hmm. as someone who identify as a woman, uh, I wanted to give you that safe space to just come into and, and you know, um, take a shortcut. And I think there's a wonderful quote by Rumi that sort of says, uh, why, you know, take a two-day journey and, and, you know, complete it in 2,000 years without a guide. Mm-hmm. So for me, I love to think that uh, I am that guide, that coach, that mentor, the big sister, the auntie, whatever you want to address me up as. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but as long as I can handhold you and show you the way, that, that's, you know, then I believe my work is done. Yeah, amazing, Michelle. And, you know, um, Saj, listening, listening to you throughout, I'm supposed to be reminding the listeners of what you do, but because I was so into the story, I even forgot to do that. So let me do that for a moment. Yeah. So listeners, <laughs> listeners, we have Saj Zafar on the show with us, who is a leadership trainer, motivational speaker, author, and an accredited personal and professional development coach. She's also the founder of Institute for Change, a specialist training and coaching consultancy, which primarily focuses on helping organizations create inclusive cultures. Listeners, if you do have any questions for Saj, any comments, please feel free to send those to 0779481822. So Saj, mashallah, there's a lot, mashallah, that you have addressed there that was very inspirational. It certainly is the story that I want people to hear because in a lot of cases, and specifically when we look at social media, we see the successes of people, but we don't know how they got there. Yeah. We And then we start to compare those success stories to our lives and think, oh my God, what have I done? I might as well just give up. I haven't done anything. And then we start to, you know, to have that, to feel really bad about ourselves. So I felt it's very important to share those stories and what people go through, because when we hear the stories, sometimes I think, wow, I was lucky mm-hmm. enough to go through that much challenge. So with a life full of challenges and going back and forth, I think the one thing that you said that kept you going is resilience. Yes. You haven't given up, mashallah. You were very determined and you always pushed yourself. And it also you mentioned in the past as well that you had therapy. And I wanted to point out the importance of therapy because when we are going down, we're going through challenges and we're going through difficulties, there, there is some stu- uh, some uh, misconceptions about therapy that it is for mad people, is this and that. But therapy actually helps us to heal mm. and to move on. And a lot of times, a lot of people just think, oh, just forget it, don't think about it. But what happens is that when you suppress emotions, you're carrying that burden with you throughout. And that burden causes so many challenges like anxiety, problems. And we may not know it, but we do experience the effects of it. Sometimes physical symptoms and we go to the doctors and we say, oh, but this is, you know, we're having pain here and there. They're like, there's nothing wrong with you. But that could be due to traumas that we have gone through. So forgetting about it is not the solution. It just means suppressing it. It means that it continues bothering us throughout our lives. So I just wanted to point out the, the the importance of therapy as you've mentioned there also the importance of reflection because he said that when you got unwell and you started to reflect on your life yeah. and that reflection leads to amazing results because it leads to action yes. and action can change things and this is exactly what happened to yourself and the moment you took you know your laptop and everything away and you said i am not coming back everything started going wrong yes. right yes. but your resilience, your um, determination, not giving up is what kept you going. It has led to where you are today. So these are the the, the, the important things that I thought I really want to point out because these were contributing to a lot of the the, the the actions that you have taken today. Now, coming to what you do today and how you help women, and we've got just a few minutes left and I'd love to ask so many things that I think I need to invite you again to come on the show. <laughs> if you can tell us a bit more about how you help women, um, because you said that you specifically help women. How do you help women, um, 
Yeah. So tell us about the coaching that you do and how you help women. Okay. So, so I'm a mindset coach mm -hmm. and uh, I follow this school of thought because it's the school of thought that worked for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm living proof of that. Um, and I just want to share very, very quickly when I met my coach, um, the very first thing he said to me was, you don't need to be wedded to, to struggle. And I really had to think about what he said. He said, um, just because life has dealt you a, a difficult card and because so much stuff has happened to you, it doesn't mean that the rest of your life needs to be like that. Mm. And he said, you know, the thing is you, you can never control the external circumstances. Mm. Things will happen. Life will derail you at any given point. It's how you show up and it's how you respond and it's how the mindset is programmed. And, you know, we are the product of our life choices. We are the product of our experiences. Mm -hmm. So I'm pleased what you picked up on. So I had to go through a process of healing before mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm in no space or um, to, to help anybody if I myself don't understand who I am. And I, so for me, I went, underwent the therapy and everything that I needed, but in order to get to what I call a healthy position, but one thing I've learned is there is no such thing as a healthy position because you're forever growing and evolving and becoming. Mm -hmm. And, but what you can do is what I call rather, uh, I'm not um, a, a conventional coach in the sense that if you come to me and I will sit down and we'll set some goals, I don't even believe in that. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing you need to do is connect with who you are. Yeah. You know, who are you? What's the lens that you look through? What are the, the experiences that are still, you know, impact you? And you talked about healing. And, you know, one of the my favorite sayings is, that it's taking you a lifetime to get here. So mm -hmm. give it a little time to move from here to where you need to be. That's the first thing. The second thing is I've never been into quick fixes. So I refuse to put a Band-Aid on a deep wound because when you do that, what is mo you know what essentially happens is when you least expect it, the, the wound will open and you will start to bleed. So with that in mind, the, the coaching I offer is very much about you are your thoughts. Whatever you think about translates into how you feel, and that then translates into actions. Mm -hmm. So once you get clear on your thinking, right, and you connect it with an emotional investment, why is it that 97% of us set goals and we never achieve them? Because they're not our goals. You, you mentioned about social media. It's so easy, and I see this every single day. I've got two young boys. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.